thanks everyone. Uh, today we're joined by Dr. Cedric Dark. Um, he is emergency physician at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. He is the founder of uh, and editor of Policy Prescriptions blog, and he is on the board of directors of Doctors for America. Thanks for joining today, Cedric, Do Dr. Dark. Um, we're going to talk. Thanks for having me here. Feel free to call me Cedric. That's fine. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Um, so we're going to talk today a, a little bit about, or dig in a little bit deeper about coronavirus, um, how it's affecting our communities. Um, we've been hearing a lot about the coronavirus, um, COVID-19, um, and how it is impacting us. Um, many of our relatives are experiencing corona. We are, ourselves are experiencing corona. In the Black community, uh, it's, it's, it's a real situation. Uh, we're seeing in, in certain cities that uh, coronavirus is impacting two, three, and sometimes four times our population share in that city. Um, so we really need to understand uh, more about this illness. We need to understand um, how it's impacting us. And so, you know, uh, we reached out to a lot of our constituents and we heard back from people that were very generous um, with their questions. And we heard directly from a lot of folks who had specific questions about coronavirus. Um, so we'll talk a lot about it. Um, we'll, we'll refer to people specifically um, and get answers to their specific questions. And we'll also hear more generally uh, about coronavirus and how it's impacting our communities. So thanks again for providing this resource. It's something that people have been asking for. Um, so we appreciate this time that you're spending and can't wait to really kind of dig into some of these topics. So first, I just want to start off and ask you, how are you doing? How's your family doing? How's it going in Houston? Um, we're doing okay. Um, I think either today or tomorrow will be like my end of checking my daily temperatures for one of my more recent exposure experiences. It's one of the things like when you see somebody that has coronavirus, they usually are like, oh, they tested positive. Now you got to check your temperature for two weeks. Um, I jokingly have said, like, I feel like I'm going to know when I'm ovulating pretty soon because I'm checking my temperature like every day. So, um, yeah, so that'll that'll stop tomorrow. My wife's also an ER doctor, so uh, we kind of both deal with sort of the day-to-day -day stress of having to think about, you know, bringing stuff home from work and everything. But, um, you know, overall, I'd say it's okay. It, it ebbs and flows. It kind of depends on the shift, depends on the day. Right. Well, we hear a lot about essential workers and frontline workers, and we really appreciate all the work that you're doing um, for our communities. Um, thank you so much for being there and putting yourself at risk. Uh, so we really appreciate all of that. And also, thank you again for taking this time to answer some of our questions. Mm -hmm. um, so first, we really want to get an overview, like if you can give us a um, some, some insight about the virus, things like um, how widespread is it, something about contagiousness, how contagious is it, um, how fatal is it, just kind of general information. So just generally speaking, um, and, and the easiest way to maybe describe what coronavirus is, it's like one of the hundreds of other respiratory viruses that circulate around and give people things like the common cold, right? We have hundreds of those that are out there. This just happens to be like a really, really, really bad strain. Um, it's a special type of virus that's new. So nobody's immune system is used to it before. Um, and what that's allowed is it's allowed it to emerge um, from, from where it started and spread rapidly across the entire globe. Um, I looked up earlier today, like which countries don't have coronavirus, I think, or no reported cases, not that they don't have it, 
One of those countries is North Korea, so I don't expect the data to be accurate coming out of there. There's a couple other countries, maybe one in Africa and one kind of in the in the Middle East region that don't have any reported cases. But other than that, it's pretty much everywhere on the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a disease that the official name is like the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, because it's related to what SARS was a few years ago, if, if your um, viewers remember that. Um, but it's essentially a completely new entity that's thrown out there on the scene. And the biggest thing is nobody has immunity to it. What we've started to see is that it is a very fatal virus as well, relative to other things. I know a lot of people may have compared it to the flu before. Um, and that's usually because some of the symptoms are flu-like. But in terms of how many people it can kill, it's much more deadly. Um, there's a a term called the case fatality rate, and that determines it's determined by the number of people that have the infection, um, and then you know you're dividing into that the number of people that die from it. And so, for the U.S. population, uh, as estimated by Johns Hopkins, the case fatality rate may be somewhere about six percent. I've seen numbers, you know, probably closer to four to five percent, which is pretty bad, actually. Um, Now, the question is, is our case fatality rate of 6% actually around there? Or is it actually lower? We just don't know because there's so many people that might actually have the disease that have never been tested. So we just don't really know what that true denominator is. Right, right. And we hear a lot about testing, and we hear a lot about um, herd immunity. Can you ex- can mm-hmm. you describe what herd immunity is, and and then kind of talk about testing and if that is something that we should really be thinking sure. about more? So herd immunity that's a concept that actually comes from you know vaccination and and whatnot. Essentially, you need a lot of people to be vaccinated against a certain disease so that if it were to enter a community and you know. Um, if you had a person, you know, if you have a disease, a virus or bacteria or whatever, entering a community, if it hits somebody, if that person is not immune to it, then they could get infected. And if they are in contact with several other people that are not immune to it, it can continue to spread. Mm-hmm. What herd immunity is, is essentially saying, oh, when it hits that first person, it encounters someone that's already been vaccinated against it or is already immune to it, so it can't spread anymore. And so that's why we talk about getting people vaccinated from things like measles, mumps, rubella, uh, those common, relatively common diseases that have serious consequences. And there are people that can't take vaccinations, either they might have allergies to certain components of it, or they might have weakened immune systems themselves. And so it's the responsibility of everybody else in society to get a vaccine so that when that virus or that bacteria hits that community, it doesn't spread to the people that have the weaker immune systems or that cannot get vaccinated, you know, like children under the age, you know, of like two months or something. Um, they can't get any of these shots. Yeah. And how, so I hear a lot about the vaccine. I hear that uh, we're being very aggressive about looking for a vaccine. There's a lot of uh, incentive. People are incentivized all over the, the planet to find a vaccine because of how it's impacting communities. But they still say that it is um, a year to a year and a half away. Does that sound right to you? Um, is there anything that can be done before then? 
So I'm not a virologist. I'm not someone that invents stuff in the lab or anything like that. So I would have to trust what you've been hearing. Yeah. Um, everything that I've heard has been, you know, 18 months or so. So, I mean, we're, we're at this point talking 2021 before there's going to be a vaccine. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things I was reading recently was that, you know, coronavirus might be sort of lurking around for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. Um, going forward, and we we need to start transitioning our thought process into that. We're we've, we're in something that is completely unprecedented, mm-hmm. and I know that's an overused word, but we've never seen anything like this. The closest thing has probably been the Spanish influence of 1918, um, which ravaged the planet. Right, and so we have to change the way we thought about doing everything. You know. Um, so that we can mitigate this current um, issue. Right. So there'll probably be lasting changes that we will see in just the way we interact with each other um, all the time, just a new normal as we keep hearing about. And how does social distancing help? Because I know it's hard for a lot of people. Um, it's hard to so- socially isolate. It's hard to socially distance. How, wh- why did, and how does that help? So the way that helps is, is this concept called r not, which is, talks about the contagiousness of a particular um, virus. Mm-hmm. So what that number is, it tells you for every person that has the virus, how many more people can be expected to um, catch it from that individual. So, you know, I think that they want the r not to be less than one. Some of the early information that came out of Wuhan is that the r not was around five or six, you know, so for every person that had the disease, they'd give it to another five or six people. And then those five or six people give it to another five or six people. So in that second tier, you're talking 25, 36 people, they're now infected, you know, from one original person. Whereas if you have an r not of two, which is, I think, where we're seeing uh, coronavirus now, somewhere between two and three then if one person has it, they might give it to two other people or three other people. And that next wave is then, you know, four to nine, you know, so it's already smaller numbers. And this is where social distancing comes into play. Because if you're infected, if you're around a bunch of people, you're going to spread the disease, obviously, to folks. And it's spread basically by talking, sneezing, coughing, um, respiratory transmission. And so you're, if, if you're in a space with other people in close proximity, they're likely to pick it up just from sitting there breathing the air that you have breathed out. So from talking, from just being, that's why they say to be far apart and six feet may sound like an arbitrary number, but it feels like if you, if you catch it, if you're talking and if you're communicating, then you need to be far, far enough away from another person so that, that those particles, I imagine, don't get into your, your nose, into your mouth and to, and to infect you as well. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that's one of the, the big things. Yeah. And how, um, how does it affect you specifically? So if you start feeling sick, what are some of the symptoms that you've come across? So a lot of times people have had flu-like illness. So muscle aches, body aches, fever, cough, chills, that kind of thing. Some people have had uh, gastrointestinal symptoms. So things like nausea, diarrhea, those have been common symptoms as well. We've seen some interesting new symptoms that are not really common for most diseases, like the lack of smell. Um, And I think that's beyond sort of just congestion. You can't smell stuff. It's just like you just all of a sudden don't have the ability to smell anymore. Um, And that's been one of the symptoms that some people have described. 
and, and more symptoms are coming up every day, um, you know, as, as we learn more and more about the disease itself. Another thing is uh, dry cough has been a common symptom as well. Um, so for instance, I, I took a look over, you know, there's a patient of mine that I saw. It's like a 70 something year old lady who, you know, one of her um, close contacts originally had come off one of those cruise ships. Right. She wound up then having like a few days of like a dry cough. And then after that had the muscle aches and the body aches and everything shortly thereafter, then started just feeling really short of breath and even chest pain was one of the symptoms as well. And so just had like persistent chest pain and trouble breathing. And that's because the virus is starting to attack the lungs. And so you're, you can imagine your lungs are starting to hurt. Um, your, your breathing becomes a little bit labored. And so that's what people are experiencing. But the thing is a lot of this, it's kind of a long term for a lot of people. It's been kind of a long term, almost up to a month before you start to feel like you're getting back to normal. Mm. Um, and one of the things that we worry about the most is you have, if, if a bunch of different people get infected all at the same time, some people will have mild disease and it'll run for a month long. Some people will get sick initially. And then in that second week, will start to decompensate rapidly where they, their lungs just can't get oxygen out of the air. And so those are the folks that we see going on ventilators um, and some of the folks that are dying because for whatever reason, they're just not doing well with the infection. Whereas a lot of people are fortunately getting the disease, having a, a terrible time with it, but eventually recovering from it. Right, right. And fevers, that's also pretty common, right? With this yes. particular illness. So how do you know if you're experiencing symptoms enough to seek medical care? And I know they say that, you know, emergency rooms are inundated and we should be careful about being in those environments, but how do we know when it's time to go to the emergency room to seek care? That's one of the most difficult things to actually to tell people in general, because as an emergency doctor, first of all, I want you to know the emergency room is open 24 seven, 365 for any kind of time you feel like you're having an emergency, you know? So that's first and foremost that I think people need to recognize specifically for this disease. Then the next question is, what are we going to do about it once you're there in the emergency room? And so if someone shows up and they're having the body aches and the chest pain, the shortness of breath, maybe we'll get an x-ray. Maybe we won't. It kind of depends on what they look like clinically. But you got to remember at, at present, there isn't any truly defined treatment. Although there have been some mentions of some things that are studied and, and the NIH has recently mentioned some promising um, some data. But I think it's still a little early to say, oh yes, this is the treatment. So we don't really have a definitive treatment. The only thing we do have for people is oxygen if their oxygen levels are low. And that's where the shortness of breath comes into play, I think. If you're feeling so winded like you can't catch your breath, and that might be an indicator that your oxygen level is low, in which case I would definitely say come into the ER because we can check your vital signs. We can make sure your oxygen levels figure out where that is. And if it is low, then maybe you need to be in the hospital just to get oxygen therapy for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, so that's uh, one of the things that could be considered. Now, I've personally told, you know, a friend of a family, you know, one of my parents, um, you know, friends recently got ill and I told him, hey, just go to the pharmacy and pick up one of those little pulse ox devices, um, which is the little thing that clips on your finger and it gives you a number. And I was like, if your number is, you know, above 94, 95, you're probably okay to go 
stay home. Once you start getting down to below 92%, 91%, 90% and below there, then I tell people that's the time that you really need to come into the emergency department. Even if there's no active treatment for it, you might be on the edge of falling off the, the oxygen cliff as we, as we would call it in, in the medical, medical world. Right. And um, when we get to the ER, sometimes I've heard folks are having a hard time convincing medical professionals to test them for COVID. Is there a reason? Is there something that we can say to ensure that we can advocate if we in fact need, if we feel the need to be tested? There is a reason and no, there's nothing that you can say that's going to convince us or at least convince me, number one. Um, so the reason that people aren't getting tested is because we don't have enough tests. Okay, and so the tests are being used on the sickest patients. So that means the patients that require being in the hospital because we need to know, do you actually have coronavirus or not? Because if you do, we need to continue the full PPE that we're doing. If you don't have it and maybe you have something else going on, then maybe we can relax that and we can conserve PPE for our other healthcare providers. So that's one of the reasons why people are not getting tested um, in the ER. And so even though you might feel terrible, you might look terrible, you know, and this disease makes people look pretty bad. I'm not going to be able to give you a test just because you say you need a test or you want a test. It's just not really something that I can do until we have a situation set up where our hospitals and our government are providing us with enough testing capacity that we can test people outside of those that need to be admitted to the hospital. So we, yeah. so the reason why we're having a hard time being tested I understand you say is because we like, we don't have enough tests. They just don't mm -hmm. exist, and our frontline workers don't have enough protective equipment to ensure that they can be safe in front of every single potential patient. Right. The main, I mean, the main thing is we just don't have enough tests to go around. Now, certain places like in Houston, where I am, they actually have some drive-up testing locations, and there there are there is capacity in certain places for people to do testing out of the hospital in the community. And if you are one of those folks that you have those symptoms, but you don't feel bad enough that, you know, to go to the hospital and you want to get tested, I would encourage you to go ahead and do that. Right. Um, because number one, if you don't have it and you come into the hospital, you know, hopefully the hospital where you are, everybody is wearing a mask because if someone, you know, they sit you in a waiting room next to somebody that has coronavirus and they coughing on you and breathing ar around you, then you could wind up catching something you didn't have. Um, just by showing up, which, you know, is there's some risk there. But again, if you feel bad enough, like you're short of breath and you feel like you can't get air, you need to be in an ER so that we can evaluate you. Okay, that's helpful. So if we are, the, the shortness of breath is key um, and getting oxygen is key. So that's, that's really helpful. Thank you for that overview. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk a bit about some of what we've been hearing about our communities and how we are uh, being very heavily hit with coronavirus. Um, there are areas in which, as I said, we are seeing black folks are attracting the disease and contracting the disease at multiples of their population share, which means that far more people, a far bigger percentage in the state are black people that are receiving, that are contracting the virus. Um, and so we've heard a lot of reasons why. Uh, we've heard about underlying conditions. We, we know that we are essential workers that are being, um, um, that are in, in the pathway of the virus. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of the health inequities that have brought us to this point um, and just kind of hear a bit about what you know, because I 
know that you work in the advocacy advocacy space as well. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's a complicated question. Number one, why do we see it more in black and brown communities? I think part of the reason that people are not doing as well once they have it might be because we are disproportionately affected by a lot of different disease processes. Um, if we're looking at like health disparities, we're talking about things like HIV, um, history of strokes or diabetes, high blood pressure, those sorts of things are vastly more prominent in the black community than in other communities. Um, and those disparities change depending on if you're talking about the Hispanic community or Native American, et cetera. Um, so that's one thing as to why people might not do well with it. But then the other thing outside of that is why do we have those disparities in the first place? Right. Um, and, and sort of what is it that causes not only those things to be uh, disproportionately affecting us, but something like COVID as well. And that goes into what we call social determinants of health. Right. You know, um, as you alluded to, there are many more workers that are considered essential workers, you know, um, grocery cashiers, people that work in hospitals, you know, whether it's as nurses, um, or other ancillary services, you know, because we're certainly not overrepresented as physicians in the hospital, but in a lot of those other positions, we are overrepresented in terms of our population. And those folks have to be at work, you know. Now, in the hospital, fortunately, most of the time, but not always, we're well protected. But if you're a cashier at Target or the grocery store or something like that, you may not be as well protected as. Um, a healthcare worker would be. And so if you're having face-to-face -face contact with people all day long, you know, exchanging money with them, um, having them, again, within that six-foot uh, window, you're likely to catch disease more so than somebody who can work from home um, or somebody that can telecommute. And so that's one of the reasons why you might see, because of the types of employment that, are ha that happen in the Black community, you might see a higher increase in coronavirus exposure and coronavirus cases. Other things that we have to think about are like transportation inequality, right? Who is actually on public transportation, buses, trains, et cetera, as opposed to who's driving their own vehicle to work? You know, obviously the person that's on the bus has more risk than the person that drives their own vehicle and doesn't have to come in contact with other people that are not inside their family. And then you have things like housing inequality issues. Um, you may see multi-generational housing going on. And if you have kids, you know, that children tend to be either very mildly affected or maybe asymptomatic altogether. But if they're living with their grandparents, then that can be something where you can see how disease would spread from a child that doesn't have symptoms to their grand grandparent who may be elderly in which case that person then is going to be at a higher risk of really bad outcome or dying from coronavirus. And so we're talking about starting schools back up and all this other kind of thing. Those are the things that, you know, some people, if schools open for them, it may not be an issue because it might be, you know, a school-aged child and a 30-year-old parent. But if you have the other situation where you have not only that parent, but you also have like a 60-year-old grandparent in the house, then you can see how a simple act of like opening up a school right. for one family 
may not be a huge problem, but for another family could be life-threatening. Right. Yeah. And you bring up a good point about opening up. So we're seeing states all around the country opening up. A lot of that opening up is in urban hubs where Black people live in densely populated areas. Um, is it safe? Uh, we're concerned. Is it safe to, to go out and, and do things now that the country's slowly starting to open? Yeah, I think that's one of the difficult questions to answer, you know, truthfully, because it's not a simple yes or no answer. I think a lot of it depends on the data. And, and one of the people that I trust um, immensely is another emergency physician who I've worked with. Her name is Joni Caldoun. She's actually in Michigan, is like one of their chief medical officers for their public health department. And she advises their governor. She was on uh, Meet the Press this weekend and was talking about how they're looking towards opening up and making sure that it's evidence-based, making sure that it's data-driven. You know, what you really need is you need the information. You need to know, does this neighborhood have a lot of cases? Does this neighborhood have a lot of cases? What about this city or that town? Because maybe if we had testing done well and we could say, okay, the, the likelihood of getting coronavirus in city A is low compared to city B, even if they're in the same state, maybe you could reopen one more than the other. And so you really need that sort of refined kind of information to be able to make these decisions wisely, as opposed to just saying, you know what, let's open up the whole state. Right. Um, and, and I'm in Texas, which is a humongous state, right? One of the largest states in the country. We have several huge population centers with Austin, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio. Those are just the big ones. You still have other population centers like El Paso or that are relatively smaller, but are still pretty big in terms of, of urban communities. And the situation may be different in each one of those places, you know? And so this is one of those things where, honestly speaking, if governors want to go out, especially Southern governors want to go out and open up their economies, they probably should try to do the best they can to follow the sort of mindset of general republicanism, which is local control of stuff, and let like the local cities decide what they wanna do. Because what happened here in Texas is Texas, the governor said, let's open up things. And then the, the uh, person that's running the county in the city says, hey, hold your horses, maybe we should, we wanna continue what we're doing here. But the governor kind of overriding localities is putting Houstonians at risk or putting other people in other cities at risk when, you know, maybe it's okay to open up more rural environments and more rural towns um, compared to bigger towns. So that's one thing that I think, you know, when we talk about this reopening there, there is sort of a, a bit of social and racial nuance that goes into it. Cause where do people tend to live? Black people tend to live. It's more urban necessarily than, than rural. And that divide, I think, you know, maybe it's just being ignored. Maybe it's not paid attention to at all. Or, you know, and, and I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but maybe they're just like, ah, whatever, the cities will be fine. Mm. You know, or maybe that's collateral damage. I don't know. Um, I'll leave that up for other people to, to look into. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's tough. So can we expect to see with the opening of these cities and, and states, can we expect to see the, um, the number of people affected by coronavirus increase? 
I would expect it as certainly as possible. Um, it really just depends, I think, on how people go about things. You know, here we reopened our restaurants. They're supposed to be at 25% capacity. If people are actually going to these restaurants and still maintaining space, perhaps um, we'll be okay. But we're not going to know for a couple of weeks, actually. Um, again, from the time that people get infected to the time they develop symptoms could be as long as two weeks. And so we may not find out the true effects of reopening the economy, which started like early May until we're hitting mid-May or the end of the month. Because right. um, again, people, when they start getting disease, it may take a week or two before we start seeing those serious cases again back in the hospital. So it might be the end of May, um, going into June before we can tell is this a failed policy or not? And by then, we're behind the eight ball again. Oh, yeah, I think that's why it's such a bizarre time because we're kind of just learning. Everybody, like you said, like no one's immune to it. So it's coming and ravaging us. People are making decisions. We don't know why. <laughs> and it's just very challenging and stressful at times to be in this moment trying to stay sane and healthy ourselves while everyone is doing the same presumably and everyone's ex exhibiting stress behaviors and it's just a really tough um time so you know that this is all good information so how do we keep ourselves safe what kind of things can we do as individuals to make sure that we're doing everything that we can in spite of you know the need to get back to work the need to get back to normal even when we go to the grocery store you know mm -hmm. how do we make sure that we have done all that we can do so the basic thing, um, number one, is wear a mask when you're out in public, if you can. And it's not only because it's preventing, you know, you from catching something. It could be that you might have coronavirus and you just don't know about it for a couple of weeks and to prevent you from spreading it as well. So if everybody wears a mask and we get into that um, culture where that's an acceptable thing, then that will help reduce you know, the contagiousness of the disease itself. And we can um, use, like any type of mask, we can make something, you know, we can look up YouTube videos on how to make them, anything works. Yeah, I mean, for, well, I mean, some things work better than other things, um, but most likely something is better than nothing. The, right. the, one, the one caveat with it is don't put on like, you know, a bandana or a scarf or even a regular surgical mask and then expect, oh, well, because I have this mask on, now I can be right up in somebody's face all day and be okay. Um, we don't want that false sense of security. None of these things are perfect. Um, they're, they're reducing risk, but they're not eliminating risk. Right. So still keep distance, even though masks. And yeah. And like, so if your child goes to um, stay with their grandparent while you have to do essential work, is do, who, does, do folks wear masks in that situation? Does grandma wear a mask? Does baby wear a mask? What do we do? It, it's going to be real hard to keep a mask on a baby. True. <laughs> or a five-year-old, as you sure. know, I've tried to do with my son going to the store and it's nearly impossible. Um, but when we've had to take him over to his grandma's house to stay, usually they're wearing masks, um, you know, just for their protection more than anything else. Um, but again, the other stuff that needs to be done, you know, you need to wipe down surfaces in your house, you know, doorknobs, light switches, that kind of stuff. Just get a little Clorox wipe and wipe those down maybe once a day. Um, or especially if you've been out of the house and coming back into the house, it's a good idea to do that. Making sure you're washing your hands frequently or using alcohol uh, sanitizer, hand sanitizer frequently, especially if you're out and about, you know, those sorts of things. 
Okay. Um, yeah. And what about wiping down groceries? Like when we bring groceries back from the grocery store? Yeah. Friend of mine, uh, Dr. Cameron Webb posted a nice little video of himself wiping all of his groceries down when they brought them back in the house. Um, you know, that's something that you certainly can do as well. Cause there's, there's this concept of, um, what we call fomites and fomites are particles that exist on surfaces, whether it's, you know, um, stainless steel or cardboard or something along those lines and coronavirus can stay um, existing on certain surfaces for several days. And so that's sort of the thought of people wiping down um, your groceries. Got it. Okay. Good to know. Great to know. So um, we had folks write in, we asked, you know, we let people know that you were coming and talking to us. And, um, and so folks emailed us pretty specific questions and thanks you so much for answering them. And I'm going to read off a couple okay. um, questions that folks have sent in. So Mary from Oak Park, Illinois wants to know um, if young, healthy folks in their 20s are together um, with no masks, less than six feet apart, and one has the virus but is asymptomatic, can the friend get the virus and bringing home, bring it home to more vulnerable older relatives? So already definitely. masks already needs to be worn based on what you've already yeah. said, but go ahead. So definitely. I mean, and I think that's one of the things that people are worried about with opening up you know, malls and beaches and all this because young people may want to congregate. Every, I mean, everybody wants to go hang out with their friends. Old people want to go hang out with their friends, you know? Um, and the problem is, think about it. Everybody's been practically stuck at home for about two months now, right? Um, either you've got something or you don't, but if one of your friends has coronavirus and you don't, and now you all come together, now you go back to your house now you've got coronavirus and everybody in your house, you're going to start spreading it to them. And this is how, you know, pandemics happen. So number one, if you're going to get with friends, which may not be the best thing to do, um, if you can video chat, that'd probably be better still. Um, but if you are, at least put a mask on. Um, and maybe if you're going to do something, I mean, Memorial Day is coming up. I know a lot of people are going to want to have a barbecue. If you're going to do that, at least like every little family unit can have their own little table far away from everybody else. You can say hi and you can wave, but yeah, that's a theme, you know, family table theme like it. Yeah. Stay, stay in your units, <laughs> your family units, you know, um, <laughs> the math. Yeah. I got it. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so another question from Susan in Alexandria, Virginia asks, is it necessary that my boyfriend and I stay separated? How do we know when it is okay to see each other again? So that was an interesting question, I think, because, you know, I, you know, a lot of this is talking about if you're a household contact or intimate contact, you can almost assume that somebody is going to, the other person, the other partner is going to have coronavirus. You know, we'll see people that come in the hospital and they're like, do you live with anybody? I live with my spouse or whatever. And they got all the same symptoms. I'm like, well, yeah, because one of you gets it, the other person's going to get it. Right. It's a tough question, you know, love in the age of COVID. Um, because if, if you all have been apart already for the eight weeks, right. Is it better to stay that way? Perhaps. Um, if you've already been together, then maybe it doesn't make so much of a difference, but just look at it like this. If someone's going to and from work and the other person, you know, they're going to two different places, maybe they meet up once or twice sporadically. You could take something from, get something from your job, give it to your 
intimate partner and then they wind up taking that to their job and now you've seen how one workplace can infect another workplace just through a tiny contact like that yeah it's true and i think i i was i mean i thought this was an interesting question too especially if you think about like let's say everybody both people are at their houses you know isolating quarantine not seeing anyone else imagine you know presumably yeah. not seeing anyone else and so and no one's been displaying symptoms for a few weeks and it's like you know can we get together there's we, neither of us have it and it says it's but you, you raise a good point like it really depends on who else you've been exposed to that you can bring it together but you know those are those hard questions you know to, to to weigh and to value but there have been some guidance we've seen guidance about how to get together and and you know see our partners and figure that whole thing out um they talk about no kissing which is one of the things that people are suggesting but anyway um it's, it's difficult so uh, marlene from bloomfield new jersey asks can heat from cooking kill covid so i had to look that up um <laughs> but so so the interesting thing is yes yeah, so the coronavirus itself gets inactivated with heat of like 130 to 150 degrees. So as long as you cook something, if there were like, let's say you sneezed, there's coronavirus on your food, you cook it, that should inactivate it. Hopefully no one's serving you food that they've sneezed on, but you know, cause that's just kind of gross anyway. That is gross. But you were, that raises a very interesting question. So we have, there's all of these, um, takeout and restaurants are still open. So should we be getting things from these takeout places that we can reheat when we get home, just in case, um, to make sure that it's okay? That's a good question. So here's the thing. So there's no cases of any coronavirus spread via ingestion mm -hmm. you know, or eating, right? And that's because, again, this is a respiratory virus. It has to get into your lungs. Mm. And so even if someone sneezed on your food, and I'm saying, don't let that happen. Um, and you ate it, theoretically, you should be okay because the coronavirus itself would go into your stomach. Your stomach acids would probably inactivate it. It isn't into your lungs at all. Um, Very good point. But there are, of course, lots of other things that could still be transmitted that way. So you want to make sure your food is, is good in general. Unsneezed. Unsneezed, yeah. Don't let people sneeze on your food. It's bad. That's, a, that's just a general rule of life. Yeah. You know, no, 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 no boogers in the food. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for that. So Ashley in Boston um, says, I live in a city and the sidewalks are less than six feet wide. How dangerous is it for me to be passing people in close proximity? I have a mask, but not everyone in my community has been wearing them. Yeah. Like I said before, there's no such thing as zero risk. Okay. Right. We're as an emergency doctor, I can never get anyone's risk down to zero from anything, right? You come in with chest pain, I can say, I don't think you're having a heart attack to within a, you know, 1% or something, but it doesn't mean 0%. So it's the same thing in this situation. You know, if you're running past someone, they exhale and virus particles might be in the air, you inhale, it's conceivable, it's possible that that one breath exchange, yes, you could catch coronavirus that way, but it's unlikely. Um, more likely if you're sitting in a room with somebody in a small space, talking to them for 15, 20, 30 minutes, you know, right. that sort of thing. So, um, and, and I say it just because I don't want people to stop going outside and become hermits. Like people should go for their walks, get exercise. If you're in a community where you can do that, you need to do those things. It's good for your mental health to get out, mm -hmm. you know, and see nature a little bit. 
um, because otherwise you're going to have other problems just from being stuck at home all the time. Right, 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 right. So wear your mask when you go outside. That's what I keep hearing. And then, so if you're, let's say you're an avid jogger and you are um, exercising, do you have to give yourself more distance just because of the types of breathing or does the mask, I mean, it, you know, it gets difficult to jog with a mask on, but you know what I mean? Like, do you have to give yourself more distance? That, I mean, the distance thing again is questionable. I've seen stuff that says in certain environments, like the droplet particles can go even up to maybe 13 feet or something like that. But that's like in a room where you might have an air conditioning moving the air in a certain direction. So the current is kind of taking it places. Mm -hmm. Outdoors, I think, you know, and th this is all spec wild speculation. Outdoors, right. you would imagine things would disperse a lot easier. And if you had sort of virus particles out there, they're going to get diluted so quickly that yeah. you should be in a, a better situation. Okay. But just in general, if people, you know, don't congregate next to people that you're not living with, you know, that's, that's the main thing. You yeah. Know. Yeah. That's don't just all of a sudden start running a marathon next to a bunch of people, you know, next week, just because you're allowed outside. Yeah. Okay. Well, I won't be doing that. Um, <laughs> so I think we have time for one last question. Uh, this is from uh, Chrissy in Wisconsin. And uh, Chrissy says, my grandson just turned three years old and will be starting back to preschool soon. Um, other businesses are supposed to open sometime in May as well. Should he be wearing a mask when going out? And I think that goes back to your, it's difficult with the kids. Yeah. I think, you know, when you're going out somewhere, like if you're taking your three-year-old into the grocery store, I would say if you can put a mask on your kid, I think that would be great if they'll keep it on. Um, whoever invents the first like kid-friendly mask is going to get rich because all the parents out there, yeah, someone needs to do that. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, that's the tricky part about reopening schools and preschools and all this other kind of stuff because we have to balance. Well, people need to go to work. With people need daycare. With you're going to have a bunch of kids coming from a bunch of different places that are now potentially going to be spreading germs back and forth, you know, and even, you know, just during regular winter time, you know, everybody, if you're a parent, your kid brings home like everything yeah. from everybody. So it's going to be the same thing with, with coronavirus. So. And I was raised to, you know, you come in the house after school and you change out of your outside clothes. Like you immediately change your outside clothes and you put on something appropriate for indoors and you wash those outside clothes. So I imagine that would also, that should also happen in this case if kids are coming back and just kind of right away. Well, again, the, the thing is, it's, it's not like what's on your clothes. It's what's in your lungs. Right. And so there's no way for you to control what you're breathing in and out all day long. And yeah. so that, that's what makes this, that's what makes coronavirus, you know, you know, almost like a perfect, um, pathogen for a pandemic right. because it's something that's that's in the air that you breathe in and out it's something that it takes a long time before it manifests its symptoms so people can spread it without knowing that they have it um and it happens to be really dangerous and deadly yeah not good things but... not good things but you know we'll get through it Yes, we will get through it. And thank you so much for your advice and your uh, feedback and answering our questions. Um, I'm sure there are many, many more. Sorry if we couldn't get to your question, but um, we tried to hit on the ones that we saw a lot of. So thank you so much, Cedric, Dr. Dark.
for spending time today and uh, we hope that you and your family stay safe and we hope to do the same.